someone has already approached me about the title of the sermon, super creative, I know, um, but this is just kind of what I've been doing because I'm not very creative, and I would probably come up with something much uh, cheesier than just using what the subjects are in each as we approach each section, lust and divorce. You may have uh, chosen to skip this Sunday if you had known what was coming, although you always know what's coming because it's just the next text. Um, this is kind of a, a more difficult subject, and so I hope we will, we will all have ears uh, to listen today. Just as with last week on the subject of murder, Jesus now follows the same pattern of bringing clarification to what had been the understanding of the law at that time. And what his intent is, in part at least, is to show us our hearts behind our actions. That where sin originates is in the heart. Where our problem, where our struggle is, is in the heart. And in this, he demonstrates that the implications of the law are broader than we might at first think. The common thought of the day of Jesus, according to the rabbi's teaching, was that as long as you hadn't committed the act of adultery, you had kept the seventh commandment. And Jesus comes along and corrects that misunderstanding to show that we are all guilty of the seventh commandment and that it is much broader than simply a singular act. Just as is everyone who is angry in his heart or launches insults at another created in the image of God is guilty of murder, so it is when we lust in our hearts that Jesus says we are guilty of adultery, which is hard to hear, difficult to understand, because we generally go to our outward actions to determine if we have met or kept the law of God. We typically go to the letter of the law. We only think of what is outward, what is viewed. I don't think I need to say this, but there is certainly, uh, I, I want everybody to understand that the act of murder, the act of adultery is certainly more heinous than simply having this thoughts. The consequences are far more uh, grievous. They're, 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 they're quite serious. It's the guilt that Jesus is teaching is in our hearts for how we think. So I just want to understand that, that uh, or make that distinction. Part of what Jesus is accomplishing, we said this last week, we'll continue to see this in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, is showing us our guilt before God. We say, I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery by the letter of the law or by our outward actions. Both may be true. But Jesus again shows us where sin originates. It's in the heart. And that in our hearts, we have all transgressed the law in more ways than we probably want to admit. So Jesus is showing us that we are all lawbreakers at every level, even if we think that we have kept the law in certain respects. Jesus declares to his hearers and to us who read his sermon today that the heart of the law is that we would obey in our hearts. The heart of the law is that we would obey in our hearts. And we have already done this on, uh, through a number of examples, going back to see this is not a, a new, new idea. Jesus is bringing clarification. This is not a new law. We, we've looked at multiple examples in the Old Testament where God has been saying this all along. He wants our hearts, not simply our outward actions. Both murder and adultery are still serious things, although I think adultery is lost A lot of the stigma in our current society still in our laws and our cultural mores. Most people don't consider it noble to commit murder or commit adultery. Yet many dwell on 
think about, harbor, feed on, lust and anger within our hearts. And what is behind both of these is the notion of discontentment. I don't get my way, so what do I do? I get mad. I'm angry. I've often said, you know, it's not my original idea, but anger is either us not getting what we want or us getting something that we didn't want, and we get angry about it. I think I deserve better, so I will be unfaithful to my spouse. I see something I think is better, so I fantasize about getting it. I will be angry if I don't. What is behind discontentment is pride. I think I deserve better. This shouldn't be happening to me. Look at what so-and-so has, and why don't I have that? So pride leads to discontentment, discontentment to envy, and envy to anger and or lust. And so this is why Jesus continues to drill down to help us to see what is at the heart level all that the law means for us. It is not simply about external conformity. God has always desired our hearts, as we've said, to obey him not begrudgingly, but with joy and in faith. And we should understand this. We desire the same thing in our own relationships, although we wouldn't use the language of law and obedience. All of us want to be thought of by our friends, whether the relationship is romantic or platonic. We all want to be thought of. We all want to be helped when we're in need. We all want to be thanked and appreciated. We all want a sense of loyalty in our relationships. In other words, we want genuineness or sincerity. And this is what God has expressed throughout the ages toward his people. Genuine and sincere faith expressed through obedience. That's what God wants from us, not begrudgingly, but gladly. So as Jesus brings these clarifications to the law regarding uh, what we see in this section, we, as with anger, we, at first we feel the heaviness of it. You know, I, I'm guilty too. I've done this. I've you know, harbored these kinds of thoughts in my mind. But upon that realization and subsequent repentance, we then realize how helpful it is to understand the law, that it's not simply a rule that we can say, I pass or fail, that's, that's the grade. It's not simply, uh, a, a, it's not a heavy burden, but it's actually a helpful tool for us in peeling back the layers of our own hearts in seeing that what God has done for, or, for us in our redemption is far greater than we have yet to comprehend. And so with that, let's look now in verse 27 where we read, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we see the same pattern. We're going to continue to see. You have heard it said, I say to you. He is demonstrating, Jesus is demonstrating his authority that he has the right to bring this clarification uh, to correct the teachings and traditions of men. And then he quotes the seventh commandment against adultery. And as we have seen, by offering the clarification that follows, Jesus is not abolishing or undoing the law, but confirming or clarifying the law. That's, that's his intent in doing this. Now, we may not understand all the problems that were present at the time, and we're not going to go into an exhaustive history of what was happening among the people, but I think most of us understand that at this point in history, men had more power than women in relationships. And within this dynamic, Uh, Just as we have today, there are spectrums in terms of what rabbis taught. 
And we'll look at this more uh, in, uh, when we get to divo- uh, marriage and divorce in chapter 19. Uh, since this is such a brief passage, we won't take the time to go into this. But basically, the, the more progressive or the more liberal uh, rabbis were teaching that you could get divorced over anything. And that in terms of adultery, I mean, including, you know, if the wife burned the husband's meal, that was a justification enough. And so when it came to adultery, they were applying... I'm, yeah, it's not a joke. They, the rabbis were literally, some of them were literally teaching that. Um, so the, the, uh, when it concerned adultery, they were very permissive in what their uh, students could do. Male, I mean, of course, rabbis are teaching only men. So in terms of what their male students could do, they could, they, they could do a lot as long as they didn't do this one thing, and that was have an illicit relationship with, an, with a woman who was also married. And so this was, I mean, their, their mindset... In a sense, not all that different from our current day, our over-sexualized day that we live in. But yet there are some differences that are helpful to understand. So it wasn't simply, it was clearly he's, he's dealing with sexual sin here, but it was all kinds of unfaithfulness that he is combating in this correction. Uh, when Jesus responds, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, it, it changes everything. It changes everything for them, and it it should change everything for us as well. The people had determined that as long as they didn't do this one thing, they were safe. They had kept the law. But Jesus says in this one, but I say to you statement that everyone is guilty. Everyone who has harbored these kinds of thoughts, fantasized, thought about, or so forth, is guilty. Everyone who looks at a woman, he says. Now, that is directed to men. I'm not going to try and undo that or unpack that, although I just want to point out that he says everyone. I think that does broaden the application, although he is directing this primarily to men. But any understanding of law in a general sense, and specifically in a biblical sense, would help us to understand this doesn't mean women are exempt. So I don't want you to see that as this is only for men. We're all on the hook for this in terms of our obedience to it. And the everyone broadens the application. Now, we do understand men are wired more visually than women are, but our day is, in this way, I do think it's unique. Look at our advertisements. Look at our entertainment. Everything is filled with eye candy of both sexes. You you can't get away from it. It's why we want to control what comes into the home and, and shield what our children see, because it's just everywhere. So this isn't limited to just men. This, is, uh, this applies to all of us. I think proverbially the, incl- uh, the, the uh, implication is that it goes beyond even the sexual realm in terms of marital faithfulness uh, to uncover things like emotional fulfillment or other things that could be deficit uh, or deficient rather in somebody's marriage. And all of this goes back to pride that leads to discontentment. We really think we deserve better. That's where all of this stems from, that if we peel back all of the layers in our hearts, the way that we're thinking and the way that we might sometimes act comes down to the fact that we really believe we deserve something different, what we imagine as better. Now, imagination is a wonderful gift from God, something very unique to us as humans, but just as with any gift, it can be misused. We enjoy from it literature, art, all kinds of entertainment. But all of this can help to encourage us in purity or lead us astray. And I don't need to go into examples on this. We all know the difference. We all understand the difference in what we're taking in. 
So what are you dreaming about? What are you imagining? Does it lead you to a place of pure thoughts that glorify God, or does it take you down a road to another end? What are you feeding your mind with? How does that affect your imagination and how you construct what you think about when no one else is around? So this message then is for all of us, both men and women, in terms of our thought life. Now, the phrase looking at a woman demonstrates that our eyes impact our hearts. We can't disconnect those two. What we see, what we take in, uh, you know, heart, mind, uh, the inner person, however we want to look at that, uh, is sometimes there forever and ever. Uh, We can't get it out. Other times it, it may not be there for long, but it certainly affects how we think, how we process. Now, chicken and the egg, which comes first? Since our mind or heart directs what our eyes look at or when our eyes look away, which comes first? I don't think that's really where we need to go. The problem isn't fundamentally the object that we look at, but the volitional intent of doing so. If we see something that we shouldn't look at, do we look away? Do we turn it off? Do we change courses? Where do our eyes go? What are we reading, watching, listening to? It's one thing to notice that a person is beautiful or handsome, but do you keep looking? Do you take things further in your mind? Do your eyes wander, literally or figuratively? And then flip it around. Ask yourself, how do you dress? How do you present yourself? How do you carry yourself? Is it to be attractive or is it to be seductive? Are you seeking the attention of the opposite sex? If so, for what reason? We can all appreciate beauty or put attention into looking our best, but both of these include a fine line that we need to be mindful of that involves matters of the heart. What is our intent behind how we dress and carry ourselves? Another point is that while the language is directed at men seeking to lust after a woman, we've already noted that the opposite would be true as well. The notion is also the same for unmarried people. We're taking both of these passages together today, and hopefully you'll see how they they do fit together. Um, Jesus preached them in this order. Uh, But in in these six verses, he deals with adultery in both of the passages. He uses two different words. And these two words together cover the whole range of sexual sin. So it covers everything from sex outside of marriage to adultery to other forms of sexual sins. And so if you are unmarried, don't think that, that you're exempt from this, from the seventh commandment. Jesus shows that, that the seventh commandment, although addressed to adultery or uh, the, the act of sex within marriage or outside of uh, breaking that act, the sex, acts of sex outside of marriage, is not limited to married people because it's a matter of the heart. Beyond the categories of married and unmarried, beyond the categories of male and female, we might also consider sexual and non-sexual infidelity. Jesus is clearly addressing sexual sin, but we wouldn't be off base to consider about other ways that we can be unfaithful to a spouse. This would include becoming emotionally involved with someone, secret thoughts and fantasizing that are not sexual, as well as the out-and-out comparisons that we often are tempted to make. Why aren't you more like so-and-so? or some version of that, to where we manipulate or try to manipulate each other. So the point is, is we need to guard our hearts. This isn't about, I've never committed adultery. This is about what's going on inside my heart. We need to fight the battle that begins in our hearts, and we need to take very seriously the fidelity that we're called to within marriage, both sexual and non-sexual, 
as well as the purity we are called to, whether married or not. In verses 29 and 30, he takes some, uh, some pretty dramatic language to, to tell us or teach us how we might fight against these temptations. He says in verses 29 and 30 that we would be better off maimed in this life than to be thrown into hell with our bodies intact. I think dramatic is, is maybe an understatement. I don't know that there's a word that would convey what we think when we read this because you know, our reaction is like, seriously? This, this is how to go about it? Most scholars do believe Jesus is using hyperbole, so extreme use of language to make a point. But it's not just hyperbole. We have to see that it, 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 it isn't that. Jesus is making clear that we need to take very seriously uh, the, the, the act of mortifying sin in our hearts. Now, we don't use that language. The Puritans wrote a lot about the mortification of sin, uh, but it's just simply killing sin within our hearts, uh, taking our thoughts captive, repenting, turning away from sin, resisting the temptation of the evil one. It is not entertaining notions of sin at all, because sin has a way of, uh, of growing like a root. The roots, they, they do amazing things. Uh, having recently engaged with a plumber um, in our not old enough house to have plumbing problems, uh, and he's become, uh, you know, a friend because he's been so much, but he was telling us part of the problem may be roots, and I was like, house isn't old enough to have roots. I mean, there's, there's nothing growing, you know, and he's like, you wouldn't believe what I've seen. And talking about how roots can grow into pipes and up through pipes and pulled a a toilet off from the the, the ground and there were just a whole system of roots coming up through it and all of these kind of things. That's what sin does in and around and up. And it can clog and it can move and it can break concrete on the sidewalk as the roots move up. This is what sin does. Sexual sin in particular has this characteristic because so often it leads to addictive behavior. If one looks at a swimsuit issue, they will easily graduate to the next realm of pornography and on and on until they are enslaved by it and looking for ways to act out on it. If a married person enjoys the affirmations of a co-worker or the flattering words of a neighbor, they will often let their guard down until they might find themselves in bed with that person. Sexual sin is never tame. It is always seeking to take over and to devour. And the language that Jesus uses here shows that there is a progression to the way that it works. He deals first with the eye, what we take in, our thoughts, and then the hand, our actions. And so he uses strong language to instruct us on the importance of killing sin in our hearts, that we would gouge our eye out or take our hand off. Now, again, that is the part that is hyperbolic. And let me say, Jesus understands that even if we gouged an eye out, that doesn't stop the problem of lust. Because where is it? It's in the heart. And even if we cut off a hand, does that keep us from going on sinning? No, because the problem is in the heart. Very few people who have ever fallen into adultery did so in one fell swoop. There were many thoughts that preceded the act, maybe even acts that preceded the final act. Many bridges that gave way before the road of no return was their path to destruction. Now, Jesus says the end is that they wouldn't be thrown into hell with their body intact. And so the question that comes up is, does this mean everyone who's guilty of sexual immorality is going to hell? The answer is that all sin damns us to hell. The wages of sin is death. And if he's already established our guilt universally of these sins, both of anger and of lust, then 
salvation has to mean something. And of course, we know that that verse continues in Romans 6, but the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Jesus is showing here first, we are all guilty. He is showing us next that we must take the fight against sin very seriously. But then he would go on to the cross to secure our salvation, that all who trust in him and confess their sins will be forgiven, will be cleansed from all their unrighteousness. In our country, uh, we have OSHA, other similar federal agencies. There's probably a state version. There's probably six different versions of OSHA. I'm not sure, but anyone who's worked in any field that requires some kind of governmental approval, you know uh, what what uh, extremes sometimes they can go to. And if it wasn't for OSHA, then most companies that are, that are large enough have their own legal teams that, that zero in on protecting against accidents, falls, spills, and so forth in the workplace and business. We joke that our to-go cups for coffee say something like, warning, contents are hot. But most of us in this room are old enough to remember why that warning is, is on our coffee cups, because there was a lawsuit of someone who sued McDonald's because... They spilled their coffee, and it was hot. Common sense. We, we don't call it common because it is. We call it common because it should be. Uh, but, but, but the same is, is true of sexual sin. It ought to be common sense that we understand how serious it is. It is not merely a physical act, but it is an act of two souls. We are never separate. As we confessed this morning, we are body and soul. Even those who do not consider sexual sin sin or immorality or they don't believe in God or anything at all, don't they often want to know what their partners have done in their past? Aren't they interested in a history? If it was just a physical matter, we wouldn't care. Those questions would never be asked. But because everyone knows it is more intimate than any other act, a joining of two bodies into one, we understand it is very serious, even simply from general revelation. So if OSHA and legal experts can strive to protect us from trip hazards, hot coffee, and wet floors, how much more seriously should we be to such sin in our hearts? It would be better for us to slip on a wet floor or trip over the hazard than it would be for us to entertain lust. It would be better for us to dump the coffee in our, in our, in our laps than to give in to that relationship we fantasized about and commit adultery, whether in our hearts or literally. So guard your hearts, take your thoughts captive, confess your sins often. You do not need, nor should you ever, maim yourself. I think, again, that's the part that's hyperbolic. Jesus wasn't telling. In fact, the, later on, the Council of Nicaea, a few people had gotten the idea that they should uh, take, take a, 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 an iron to the eye and gouge it out. Uh, and so the Council of Nicaea uh, uh, forbade this. So it's, this, this is not what Jesus is getting at. But he is saying we should be willing to take extreme steps to guard ourselves. So what does this look like? It may be accountability software on your phone or computer. It may be seeking help from others like your pastor. It may even be cutting the cord to your devices if you continue to stumble. Extreme steps that you would be willing to take to fight this battle. You may need to end relationships that tempt you to go beyond, even if it's just emotional. We must address these issues with severe introspection. Following this, Jesus deals with divorce in, chapter, or in verses 31 and 32. It is not an exhaustive teaching on divorce. It is two verses. 
And this is all the flow of the sermon. And so I don't think he is intending to, uh, to, to jump in in depth. He will do that later. We'll get to that specifically in Matthew 19. Here, I think the emphasis is tied to what he has just said about lust and adultery and what he is about to say, which we'll look at next, on keeping oaths. So Jesus begins, it was also said, which is a slight variation, but the same pattern, it has been said, but I say to you. And then he quotes not something from the Ten Commandments, but from the Law of Moses in Exodus 24. Now, in this passage in the Law of Moses, we won't take the time to read it because it involves what Jesus says in Matthew 19, which we'll get to, and I don't want to take everything from that or I won't have as much to say then. Uh, but, but what Jesus deals with in, in, in bringing this to the attention uh, concerning divorce is that God had granted, made a concession, as you will, that, that Moses could, could give this, this certificate of divorce for this reason, because of the hardness of your hearts. Jesus goes back to Genesis 2. We'll see this in when we get to chapter 19. He goes back to Genesis 2 and presents that creation account and first marriage as the example of lifelong commitment in marriage, one man, one woman. The prohibition in Deuteronomy 24, there's really only one, and it, it's, it states that if a man divorces his wife and she remarries, he may not then, and later divorces, he may not then remarry her. And there seem to be in that two protections. First, for women in this day, uh, if the man divorced her in spirit, cut her off, didn't care for her financially, but didn't give her that certificate, that legal piece of paper, uh, it would affect her, her, her life. She couldn't, it was very difficult to provide for herself in this day and age. So it was protection for the woman. But it was also a warning for the man to not be cavalier toward divorce, as was common in this day and age. Because the rabbinical teachings had turned divorce through a what we could call a misunderstanding of this concession. I don't like using that word, but, but that's really what Jesus implies when he says, God did this because of the hardness of your hearts. The only reason he did it, there's really a better example. We'll get to that soon. Uh, but it was a means, they had turned this into the means of just moving from one relationship to the next. Again, one rabbi taught that if the wife burned dinner, uh, the man could divorce her. I mean, it just, it, it was in no way the heart and the mind of God when it comes to marriage. God's intent was never this. Jesus would later go on to say in, in, in the, from the Genesis 2 account that the two had become one flesh. And then that famous saying, what God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. So Jesus is then in this, but I say to you, response, clarifying that divorces of convenience lead to adultery, that both parties end up becoming adulterers in this case. We're not going to go much deeper than that. We don't have time. Uh, we'll get to those passages. But it does show us that divorce is undesirable. This is not God's best for our lives. We all know that divorce creates real problems on a pragmatic basis. Even unbelievers understand that. Jesus points out adultery and the compounding sin that results, but this doesn't undo the other problems that divorce creates. Often here when the subject comes up, it's usually Christians who have not been impacted by divorce. They quote Malachi 2.16, For I hate divorce, says the Lord. And that is a true statement. God hates divorce. But no one says, I love divorce. I've never heard anyone say that. It's not the gotcha that you think it is if you're using it to, to hurt or shame other people. Uh, God hates divorce, but everyone I've ever interacted with doesn't like it either. I mean, people may say, I wish I had never married this person, 
But it doesn't, it's not the same as saying, I love divorce. I'm so glad I got to go through this breakup and all the consequences, including the money, the exposure, and the many other losses. Divorce is one of those things that everyone can hate because you wouldn't wish it on even the people that you don't like. It's just a mess. It wrecks lives. But just as Jesus calls out the people of his day from being cavalier toward divorce, we must also not treat it like it's the unforgivable sin. Unlike adultery, many cases of which are never found out, divorce is almost always quite public. Much of the stigma against it has faded in our society, but is still prevalent in the church. As believers, we are to remember who God is, who we are, and what we've been delivered from, that we are all coming with empty hands to be saved by grace. There is no class structure in the church of Jesus Christ. All have fallen short of God's glory in our sin, and those who trust Christ are saved by grace alone through faith alone. When Jesus, will see this later, when he says, judge not unless you want to be judged in the same way, that's, that's my paraphrase of his comeback, no one wants to be shamed for their past, so you and I shouldn't do this to others. If we can glory in Christ Jesus, that as far as the east is from the west, so far have our sins been removed from us, then we should glory in that for other believers as well. We've already established that God hates divorce. I think everybody hates divorce, but we should be able only then to mourn it in humility and never shame others for it. And finally, if divorce produces immorality in both parties, we should return to the previous section and be reminded ourselves that we are all due the same accusation, all of us having harbored secret sinful thoughts in our hearts. I say all of this because few in this room have not been touched by divorce in some way. Let me say this. Avoid it. It's not good. Don't, don't, don't let it come into your marriage discourse. Don't present it as a threat or as an option. Avoid it for your own good, but especially for the glory of God. In the act of marriage, we vow to work it out for better or worse, all that whole list. It is work. Sometimes it's harder than other times, but it is a good work. Again, not only for our good, it's for the good of others because divorce has a ripple effect. It always affects other people, but ultimately for the glory of God. So if discontentment then that is rooted in pride is what feeds our covetous and lustful thoughts in our hearts then the antidote to this is to seek contentment with an attitude of thankfulness rooted in the gospel, what Christ has done for us. None of us have perfect spouses. Nobody nod. None of us have perfect spouses. And none of you are the perfect spouse. Now you can nod, okay? That's, that's just true for everyone who's married. For the unmarried, a future spouse, no matter how dreamy they are or how they first seem, will end up remaining perfect for long. Take a poll in the room. Instead, let us remember that every good gift comes down from our Father in heaven. Therefore, we should continually remind ourselves to be thankful and to live thankfully. Gratefulness is rooted in humility. So if you're struggling with gratefulness or thankfulness, dig a little deeper. Because knowing that we have received something from someone that we haven't deserved brings us to humility, makes us thankful. 
This applies to husbands. This applies to wives. This applies to you who are yet married. If you are content, even as you may one day desire to be married, learn contentment now in this time. Learn to be thankful for the freedoms and the opportunities that you have in this time. Don't allow discontentment in in your single days because it will transfer very easily into your married days. For all of us who are trusting Christ, let us grow in gratefulness for the great salvation that we've been given in Him, that we may walk in purity of heart, overflowing with thankfulness for the great inheritance that has been granted to us in Christ Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Let's pray. Father, for this we are grateful even though we don't fully comprehend it. 